And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. It is Thursday, and what a week. What a week. What a week. That's okay. We're doing just fine. We are live from the bunker, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. It is Thursday, our last broadcast of the week. But that's uh, no reason to skimp. And today we have a guest... Keith the Candido is waiting in the wings. A couple of things here real quick. The live chat is open for anybody who wants to join the conversation. If you are watching or listening in replay, you can send us an email or leave a comment. Uh, email address is live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. And, uh, of course, comments uh, are open pretty much all the time. If you want to leave your thoughts. And if you would like to subscribe, if you're just finding us, whether it's a recommendation or somebody shared a link. By the way, those of you are sharing the link, right? If you're finding us just for the first time, welcome. We hope you consider subscribing to the channel. We've got lots of things here to watch and, and enjoy. Hopefully you enjoy it. And as part of that, uh, we have negotiated, uh, we've arranged over at SuperheroStuff.com, a discount code, Sci-Fi For Me 10, when you check out, and that will give you 10% off your order. It can be used in combination with some sales, but not everything. So it just it just depends on uh, what they have going. But yeah, you save ten percent off when you use the promo code Sci-Fi for me ten. Now, uh, first of all, just real quick, I want to get to this. This announcement has has come across on uh, on YouTube and Twitter. Joe Jesco po posting this. It is an announcement. Uh, John Buscema's daughter uh, apparently posted this yesterday. 45 pieces of original Buscema artwork has apparently been stolen. Uh, they are in conversations with police. An investigation is going on right now, so they can't talk too much in detail. Uh, but just wanted to get that out there uh, in case anybody is, uh, is seeing any of this stuff. And of course, Walt Simonson posting it over on Twitter as well. So just wanted to kind of give people a heads up that that is going on. And uh, we'll see if maybe we can just kind of boost the signal there just a little bit. All right. So uh, that is that is something I think is probably one of the more uh, egregious violations that we see on things. You know, people faking artwork, people stealing artwork and selling it. You know, eBay is notorious for that kind of stuff. Hopefully they recover that uh, without too much trouble. All right, so now let us bring on our guest, Mr. Keith R.A. DeCandido. How are you, sir? I'm doing okay. Well, welcome, and uh, thanks for thanks for taking the time to talk with us. So it's always good to have you back. Uh, Keith was on here not too long ago on Deep Space Minds talking about Lower Decks. Uh, 
And I guess we could start there very briefly because you're also doing uh, recaps for Discovery over on Tor's website. Right. I've been, well, on Tor.com, uh, which isn't, I mean, yes, it's owned by Tor Books, but it's really a, a pop culture webzine more than anything. Right. Um, and I have been writing about Star Trek for Tor.com since 2011. And specifically since 2017, I have been reviewing each uh episode of the new trek shows as they've come out so i've reviewed every episode of discovery every episode of short treks every episode of picard and every episode of lower decks uh currently um in fact uh, my review of this week's discovery went up this morning and uh of uh, forget me not and that's up on tour.com now uh, i've also been re-watching uh and yes there's the screenshot um i've also been re-watching um uh the older star trek shows I think you're in Voy Voyager right now, aren't you? Yes, yeah. and in fact, at the same time that this uh, that this episode started, my uh, my <laughs> review of um, um, crap, I blanked on the title. Um, concerning flight uh, went up. That is the the Da Vinci Gun Wild episode. Um, <laughs> okay. The uh, that that's every Monday and Thursday. I've already done complete rewatches of the original series, which included not just the 79 original uh, series episodes, but also the 22 animated episodes and all uh, 13 movies, but um, featuring the original crew. Uh, I did a next generation review. I did a rewatch. I did a deep space nine rewatch. And I am currently, as you, as we just said, in the midst of a Voyager one, I'm in the middle of season four right now of Voyager. So I'm roughly halfway through. Now you're in a rather unique position there because with um, watching all of these shows back to back to back to back to back to back, it's all fresh in your head. And there are people out there who, you know, they'll they'll call up and, you know, they'll have instant recall of various different things. But now having gone through all of that marathon and now you're watching Discovery and we talked about Lower Decks, honest opinion, how does new Trek stack up against old Trek in your, in your view? I mean, I know you're a little bit biased because you're actually work in that universe. So you, you probably <laughs> got to be careful uh, not to bite the hand that feeds you, but no, no, it, 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 both are, they have their good and their bad. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I resisted doing a Voyager rewatch for a long time because I wasn't that big a fan of the show. Mm -hmm. um, I loved I mean, I grew up with the original series and loved it. Um, I loved Next Generation. I loved Deep Space Nine. I did not love Voyager. Um, but this year being the 25th anniversary, uh, and for a number of other reasons, I decided to give it a shot anyway. Um, and it's... Voyager still it still has many of the same flaws that that kept me from being really being able to get my arms around it 25 years ago. Uh, but it's got some great episodes, too, and it's got some good characters. And um, ultimately... Uh, all of the Star Treks, uh, both, you know, in the 60s, in the late 80s and, and 90s and, and early 2000s, and currently all whatever their flaws that they may have from episode to episode usually have good, interesting, compelling characters and give us a generally hopeful future, one that is certainly better than the one we've got now. <laughs> um, and that's been consistent throughout all of them. Uh, and, and I think the, um, you know, even when they've had moments, you know, certainly, especially, you know, DS9 challenged uh, 
the hopeful future how the original series challenged it a lot too um and and both discovery and picard have done likewise but it's still ultimately a better future than the present that we have and it's one that, that gives hope for humanity you know and and one every single show defaults to compassion compassion right. is the way that the problems are solved well, and I and I and I continue to see criticism, especially of Picard, that the tone has gone uh, particularly nihilistic. I think is one of the one of the words that I've seen. And, and, and there, there's an there's an argument to be made for that, but ultimately, like I said, the 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 the, the crisis of the ten episode first season was solved by. Um, not by taking up arms, not by fighting their way through it, right? Not by you know, doing something horrible, but by <laughs> being nice to each other, by, <laughs> um, by by people accepting accepting each other and 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 being compassionate rather than being violent. Right. Um, and and even you know, it was it was still a hopeful ending for all that that the episodes leading up to it were were a bit more dystopian than we've come to expect from the twenty fourth century, but. Um, but yeah, it it, I still think it worked, and I still think it was it was very much in 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 keeping with the the hopeful, because Star Trek, despite what Gene Roddenberry said later in life when he really, not to speak ill of the dead, but started to believe his own bull. Um, even even you know, the, the future of the original series was not quite as utopian as as Next Gen in particular tried to portray it right. as. It was it was a better future. It was a hopeful future. It was, it was humanity that was striving to improve itself and and trying to move, you know, moving past the bigotry, moving past the hatred and still, you know, wasn't always perfect, but they did their best. And and that's been true of all of them. You know, um, you, uh, perfection is 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 not a state that you can really achieve, but it's one you can work toward. And the the main characters in all the star treks have always stri striven toward that um one way or another at least in the in in, in overall sure um there have been individual cases where it hasn't been as much on all of the shows but but ultimately it's still that hopeful future and it's still that you know uh, trying to 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 solve solve the week's problems um in, in ways that are not horrible. No. <laughs> no. Uh, Do you think, now going to, to Strange New Worlds, assuming that that goes into production and we actually get that show and everything everything works out fine, you know, with all of the productions being delayed and, and, and shut down and back up and whatever, uh, uh, um, um, oh, what's his name? Um, Akiva Goldsman has said that that one's going to go back to the more traditional episodic type of thing. And you just mentioned, you know, the episode of the, of the week type of thing, mm -hmm. as opposed to serialized storytelling like we got in Picard, like we're getting in Discovery. Is one better than the other? Does it, does it matter? Does it depend on what kind of stories are being told? Which do you think, now that we've gotten both uh, in Star Trek, is there one that you think works better in that universe? No, uh, there, there's no, the method by which you tell the story is less important than the story being told. Um, there, one way is not intrinsically better than the other. That's silly. That's not how storytelling works. Right. Um, I'm glad they're taking that approach with Stranger Worlds just because it's different from the approach they're taking with the, the other shows. And the variety is part of what keeps things interesting, especially given 
the only reason why we're looking forward to Strange New Worlds is because we spent the entirety of season two seeing how fantastic Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romine were. Um, there really isn't any great need for a Pike series in and of itself, yeah. but the three of them were just so good <laughs> in the role. So, but having said that, it's still going to be basically a sh- another. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. So I think making it different from these are the voyages of the Starship Discovery and and different from what they're doing on Picard will help differentiate it from the other things they're doing on on All Access. Sure. Um, Do you think going back to that kind of format might help with some of the people who have criticized Discovery and Picard for being that darker, grim, dark, gritty, uh, no, pessimistic every time, tone? Every time there's a new Star Trek, there are going to be people <laughs> who are going to complain about it because it's not the Star Trek they grew up with and they don't like it. Yeah. This goes back to 1979 when people were complaining about the completely changed technology and the completely redone Klingons and the horrible new uniforms in the motion picture. Sure. It happened again in 1987 when Next Generation debuted and everybody said, how can you possibly do Star Trek without Kirk, Spock, and McCoy? That's blasphemy. <laughs> um, and you did it again in Deep Space Nine debuted when it was like, well, how can you, how can it not be on a ship? And, and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, every time there's a new Trek show, there's always a contingent of the viewership who thinks it's horrible and thinks it's terrible and thinks it's not real Star Trek um hell gene roddenberry himself was going around to conventions in 1982 telling fans not to go see the wrath of khan because uh nicholas meyer didn't know anything about star trek didn't understand his vision and and would absolutely ruin it and it wouldn't be real star trek right nothing changed and of course he stopped doing that once everybody saw the movie and liked it but um, but you know the the when when something lasts as long as this has, there's always going to be people for whom something was their first Star Trek or something was their favorite Star Trek yeah. and something that comes along that's different is not going to be liked. That doesn't mean the criticisms aren't valid. Um, but I, I mean, I think the reason, I don't think they're, the approach they're taking with Strange New Worlds is because they want to silence the critics who said it was too dark. They're doing it that way because they think it'll work better the storytelling will work better that way. Sure. And I think they're right. Um, I think if they're if they're going to do, if they're going to make the Pike show stand on its own, and and if they're going to do something as very obviously retro as that, then doing it in the style of the original series in terms of of plot at least uh, standalone plots would work. I think something like what DS Nine did and what the the Stargate franchise did is having having the character arcs develop from episode to episode, but having each episode be its own single story told in an hour is 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 i think the sweet spot for 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 what they can do well and with stargate too you had a a number of episodes that would call back to previous episodes without being a direct you know this to this to this to this episode by episode by episode so you're able to kind of leapfrog this the certain elements of plot Mm -hmm. now speaking of stargate and and star trek you've written tie-in fiction uh, in a, a number of these worlds. Yes. About uh, well, 35, I think, at this point. Well, uh, yeah, because you've done Alien, you've done Supernatural, you've done X-Files, I mean, you, you Leverage, you've been all over the place, Buffy. Is there a particular approach, because you, know, you mentioned Nicholas Meyer, when he comes in and he sits there and, and says, you know, I didn't know anything about Star Trek, I'm doing Star Trek 2, I watched all of the episodes 
You know, he, he does his homework and he plays catch-up. Whenever you do any kind of a tie-in fiction, have you had to, to be in that position where, you know, somebody approaches you and say, hey, Keith, you want to write a book in X universe? And you sit there, I don't know anything about it. But yeah, sure. What's the, what, what are the, your first steps in writing a tie-in book as opposed to original? Um, when that happens, whether I'm familiar with the project or not, my next step is to dive in and do immersive research. Um, as an example, I was approached to do a novel based on uh, Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda, the Kevin Sorbo show from the, from the turn of the millennium. Uh, that I had seen maybe two episodes of the show, but the editor approached me because of the Farscape novel that I had done also for tour boats. And, uh, and I, and, you know, he said, do you want to do an Andromeda novel? I said, sure. And then I sat down and binged it, mm -hmm. um, which was harder in those days because we didn't have streaming services, but, um, <laughs> but I was, I was able to basically, they, they sent when I, when I got the gig, they sent me uh, VHS tapes of all the episodes to date. Um, and I was able to get scripts of upcoming episodes as well. But I, so I basically mainlined Andromeda up to that point, the, but that was in order to familiarize myself with it. However, if it's a project, if it's a property that I'm already familiar with, I do the same thing. When I did the Farscape comic book from 2008 to 2011 for Boom Studios, I did the same thing, even though Farscape is one of my favorite shows and when I've seen them all the episodes multiple times, I still rewatched it again. When I got the leverage assignment, same thing. I've been watching it religiously, but I wanted to get the world in my head. I wanted to get the character voices in my head. And also you, you watch it differently when you're writing a tie-in than you do when you're watching it just as a, as a fan. You're paying attention to different things. You're paying attention to the character interactions. You're paying attention to the motivations of the characters. Right. You're, you're paying attention to a lot of different things. Um, and, and, and it can be gratifying. It's like where you, where you, you see things that, that um, you're not, they haven't stated explicitly on the show, but, but look like a theme to you. And then later episodes make it clear that that is a theme. Um, that, that, that I got it right, so to speak. Um, and so that, um, well, I, perfect example. I did, uh, I did three supernatural novels. And to me, Dean read as the kind of guy who in school was smart, but didn't want anyone to think he was smart. So he pretended to be stupid. <laughs> um, I encountered this all the time. Uh, in high school myself and and that just and especially because there were several occasions where Dean would pretend not would, would act like he didn't know about something that he should damn well have known about and Sam has to explain it to him which was done in the script so that Sam could explain it to the viewer sure but um but it also fit it fits Dean's personality to my mind um whereas Sam was the nerdy kid who always showed off exactly how smart he was all the time and didn't care if the other kids made fun of him for it um I put that in, in one of my books and and a few readers thought that that was not a valid interpretation of them, except then later we saw them as kids and that's exactly what they were like. Um, so obviously I was on the same wave, wavelength as the people writing the show. Um, you're not always, I mean, I, I, they're pl forever, I'm sure plenty of readers can come up with instances where I got that wrong too, but, uh, and, and it's especially tough when you're, when you're dealing with an ongoing uh, series because things change over the course of, of the series and also writing staffs change. So, uh, you know, what, as an example on Star Trek Voyager, Jerry Taylor was the showrunner for the first four seasons. 
And she wrote two novels that gave the backstories of the characters, Mosaic, which was Janeway's backstory, and Pathways, which was the rest of the cast's backstory. Right. Those backstories were followed while Taylor was the showrunner. But when she left after season four, uh, her, her successors did not feel obligated to pay attention to those two novels at all. Um, and so stuff would come up later that wound up uh, contradicting it. Well, and that was back in the day when, when it wasn't like Star Wars is now, where it's all canon. You know, the books, the Star, the Star, Star Wars Trek was books. never like that. No, no. Uh, well, I, no, I mean, no, in terms of now. I'm sorry. That, no, that, no, no. That, that argument annoys I don't, the crap out of me. I don't mean the EU. I mean, when Disney I'm, bought it, when Disney bought it and they set up their story group and they said, from here on out, everything is going to be connected. Everything's going to be canon. That was the general understanding. But with Star Trek, it never has been that way. The books have never no. been canon. So it, it, I think that's maybe a frustrating aspect of it for some fans to sit there and go yeah but you had all of this great stuff in these books why don't you ever use it it's it's tough to keep track of all of that and i imagine it's probably frustrating too because you've got to get to the status quo at the end of your book because you can't change anything that in the in the shows it doesn't bother me i, I know the job was dangerous when i took it and <laughs> and also even for all that disney is saying that it all ties in together now it still doesn't the the, the on-screen continuity will overwrite the tie-in continuity if they decide it does yeah uh which just happened a week ago on the mandalorian because Cobb vance backstory in that episode of the mandalorian is not the same as it was in chuck wendig's novel right um and that's and that's always going to happen it's the economics of scale the needs of a tv show or a movie that reaches millions or billions of people is always going to overwrite the needs of a tie-in novel that reaches thousands and thousands of people sure um they're they're not going to alter a multi-billion dollar multi-million viewer tv show or movie to accommodate something that only less than 10 percent of the audience has read um and i know that yeah and and my fellow tie-in writers know that we know i mean every once in a while something winds up on screen um you know sulu's sulu and uhura's first names both came out of of tie-in fiction uh, and wound up being canonized. There's some stuff from the Star Wars novel that has wound up on screen, including the planet Coruscant and, and any number of other things. Um, for that matter, uh, number one's first name of Una came out of the tie-in fiction. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it does happen. Um, the, But, you know, it's still... I, and I don't stress about it because I don't stress about what's real in a fictional construct. Um, <laughs> you know, I... It, Yes, the novels are not canon. The Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't canon either, but they still keep making those movies and people keep going to see them. <laughs> um, you know, which version of Batman is real? Ben Affleck's or, you know, Michael Keaton's or Robert Pattinson's or Adam West's or the one that's been in the comics since 1939? I would say um, the answer to that is yes. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, we've had how many different versions of Sherlock Holmes yeah. over the last 20 years? Uh, none of which are consistent with each other and none of which are consistent with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle um, entirely. But, and, and it still all works. It's, it does, I don't think it matters. Yeah. Um, now, as long as the stories are good, as long as the characters are still recognizable as themselves, if the details are different, the details are different. First Contact is still a great movie. The novel Federation is still a great novel. They tell two completely contradictory stories of Zephyr Cochran's life. Yeah. They're both still worthwhile. They're both still accepted as Star Trek stories. Um, only one of them is going to be referred to in other Star Trek productions. <laughs> but but that doesn't make Federation a bad novel. 
and it doesn't and it's still considered one of the best Trek novels that have ever been done. Um, have you made a pitch for tie-in that uh, that didn't get made, and that somebody comes in and does something? You say, "Man, I sh- I could have done that better." <laughs> um, uh, I I probably I can't think of a specific <laughs> example now, but um, it happens. You know, no. there's 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 lots of uh, parallel development. A perfect example, actually, that, and I don't think I did it better or worse. It just um, it just would have been repetitive if I had done it the way I originally pitched it. I pitched something for my Sleepy Hollow novel that I wrote, the the Tom Meese and Nicole Beharry show. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. From, from six, seven years ago. Um, I wrote what turned out to be the only tie-in to the to the show. And I pitched something involving a, a sword that could cast, a magic sword, basically, that could cast a spell. They said, great, we love it, it's wonderful, can't be a sword. Turns out they had their own magic sword story developing for season two, so I had to make it something else. It worked out fine. Um, you know, the, the, in fact, it probably worked out better not being a sword as it happened because it freaked, cause I was, I was basing it on actual swords that were given away as, um, in essence, medals, you know, uh, sword gifts to heroes of the revolution, uh, during the revolutionary war. Right. Um, there's one of those swords is actually in the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York, which is, which is where I first found out about it. And uh, by making it something else, by making it a, a, a metal cross with 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 stuff inscribed on it, uh, that that freed me up to to play around with it a little more and and, and do it a little differently. So. Now the the tie-in stuff that you've done, and then the original stuff that you've done. You mentioned the magic sword, the magic the magic cross. Uh, you've got Dragon Precinct. Uh, you've got that series that involves magic and police. How many of those? How many of those are you up to now? There are five novels. Um, plus one short story collection, and I've got a bunch more works of short fiction floating around in the ether, um, which will eventually be collected into a second short story collection. Um, I am currently uh, one of my one of the upcoming works I'm doing. I've, I've had the basic plot for it, and I, I, I will be working on it soon. Is the sixth novel, which is called Phoenix Precinct. Um, that I'm hoping to have that out in 2021, if all goes well. Um, since we're already in November of 2020, that may be optimistic. We'll see. <laughs> how long does but, it take uh, you to, to go from pitch to publish? What's how, depends uh, on how long they give me. Um, oh, okay. I've, I've taken as long as six months. I've taken as little as 10 days. Uh, the 10 days only happened once and I'm eager to never repeat that. <laughs> but, um, and it was for a book that wound up not getting published, which made it even more annoying. Oh yeah. But, um, uh, my, my sweet spot is usually like two months. Um, and uh, I could get it done faster, depending. I, with with the precinct books, they tend to go a little faster, just because I'm I'm really comfortable in that world and I love that world. And um, you know, I, I I usually can do that in like six weeks. How how easy is it for you to track your own world building? Have you got a giant spreadsheet? You got uh, a big whiteboard? Uh, I, or... I, did. I actually just discovered uh, continuity screw up in Mermaid Precinct that that with a a story I did afterward. Hmm. Um, and, and I didn't quite get all the details right. It stuff happens. I, I try to keep track of it all, but it's hard. Yeah. Um, usually before I write a new story in the world, I sit down and do that same immersive research I was talking about before. And I read through everything, but sometimes stuff gets missed and, and it hasn't been anything like major. Um, but it's frustrating when it happens, but you know, Again, not stressing about what's real in a fictional construct. Yeah. So, is there a, is there a tie-in universe you haven't played in yet that you really, really would like to? 
Oh, tons. Um, uh, most of which I wouldn't get a chance to now because they're long defunct. Um, I actually pitched a Highlander novel back in the day. Um, the back when there were uh, Warner was doing Highlander tie-in novels, and there was one slot left. They had one book left in the contract. Three people sent pitches in. I was one of them, but not the one that got picked. Mm. Um, and uh, I would have loved to have written a Babylon Five novel. I had a, I had an Ivanova novel that I wanted to pitch, but that never materialized. Um, I wanted to write a Battlestar Galactica novel for the for the reboot. Um, and, uh, I was, I was, I didn't, I was unable to pitch to that. Um, you may get another chance with that one because, you know, they're rebooting the reboot on TV and they're rebooting I, the rebooting and the reboot on the movies. Yes. I yeah. uh, will be entertaining to see how that <laughs> plays out. And, and the editor who, who basically I was, I was told, uh, my, my, my services were not required because the editor only wanted to use real science fiction writers, um, which kind of piss me off a little bit um how are that they editor is no longer uh how are they the defining field, so. real science fiction like non-tie-in writers yes. or yes that was the idea was people who didn't have a history writing tie-ins um uh except one of the people he hired two of the people he hired were craig shaw gardner and peter david who have a huge history writing tie-ins yeah um but the editor the, the editor in question uh felt i did not have enough of a resume of original work whereas peter and craig did um having said that i i would have loved to have written for that like I said, um, I would have loved to have written a novel based on Homicide Life on the Street, which is one of my favorite TV shows. But when they had tie-ins for that, they went with an Edgar Award-winning mystery author for some reason. So I couldn't really complain about it. Sure. Um, and there are probably some others. Uh, the Librarians, I would have loved to have written. Uh, Greg Cox has written all of the tie-ins for that so far. And I don't. And, and honestly, I can't begrudge them that or him that. First of all, Greg is one of my oldest friends. Um, Second of all, if I was an editor in charge of write, of hiring somebody to write a librarian's tie-in novel, Greg probably would be on the top of my list of people to contact. Yeah. So, um, he's he's his writing style is perfectly suited to that to that uh, to that franchise. So, um, I see a lot so of yeah, different I, a lot of different things on the on the on your bookshelf there, but I I notice you've got a David Weber book in there. He does a lot of collaborations now. Uh, especially in the Honor Harrington, as as that universe expands and where have you? I, I'm I'm drawing a blank on how much collaboration you've done with other authors. Is that is that something that you would consider playing in somebody else's universe? Maybe not a of an IP, a media it's, franchise, it's but funny you should say that. Um, <laughs> I've actually got two novels uh, coming out. One just got released, and one is being released in January, um, which are collaborations where I'm working with. It's similar to, to what David's done with some of his collaborators. One of them, uh, the one that just came out is called To Hell and Regroup with David Sherman. That's a case where uh, it's the third book in a trilogy. It's a military science fiction uh, story. Um, David wrote the first two books, uh, Issue in Doubt and In All Directions. It's uh, it's about an alien invasion of a human colony in the in the future. Um, the, the the first invasion wipes the colony completely out. The story of the trilogy is the response to that, which is the, the North American Union's army, navy, and marines being sent to this colony to repel the invaders and, and drive them off. And David wrote the first two books, and I edited them um, uh, originally. And then for a variety of, of personal and health reasons, David was unable to finish book three. And he asked me, since I was already familiar with it and because I had edited the first two books, he asked me to to work with him to finish book three. So the third book is a collaboration between the two of us, but it's still very much David's book. I, my, my job there was just to be the relief pitcher. Um, right. 
to, to finish the game for him as it were, but it's still his win as it were. Um, uh, so, so there's that. And that, like I said, that's very much David's thing. And that's me in essence acting as a tie-in writer um, in, in David's 18th race milieu. Um, I also wrote a book with Dr. Manish K. Batra, which is a thriller called Animal, which will be out from Wordfire Press in January. Um, that's about a serial killer who targets people who harm animals. It's like Dexter if PETA had created it. <laughs> and um, uh, that, again, that is entirely Manish's uh, uh, story. Um, he's, uh, he's working with me on it. Um, you know, it's, it's very that that's more of a direct collaboration because there's I, I brought a lot more to the table than I did with David. David, I was just, you know, inserting myself into his world. Sure. Uh, in Manisha's cases, he had the the, the story is his. Um, the plot is his. The, the overall theme is his. This the, I, I worked with him on developing the specifics and, and uh, several, although not all of the characters I developed. Um, the, the the main characters are still very much is the side characters we developed together, um, and and other stuff that, that we worked on together. It's 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 a much more organic collaboration than than the stuff with David was. But um, I mean, in general, yes, obviously, because I just did two of them. I'm open to the idea. I'm writing more books with Mimish. Um, I'm in the midst. I'm, I'm revising another uh, book that we put together called Pigman, which uh, is a medical thriller, which uh, is going to be shopped around to publishers soon. Not to be confused with Paul Zendel's book. Right. Yeah. Well, that I don't know if that's going to be the final title, but um, uh, they almost never are. Right. Uh, but um, that that's our working title at the very least. Now you mentioned editing. Is 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 there a difference in your approach between editing and and authoring? I mean, do you oh, sure. do you slip into one or the other when you're doing the other job, and you're just like, no, 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 I can't think like an editor. I'm writing right now. Or you're an editor and you're like, no, I can't think like a, a, an author. Uh, does that does that ever kind of start seeping into one to the Not other? Usually, <laughs> <laughs> for the most part, yeah, I'm able. Yeah. To, I haven't. I the, the the editing has has not been happening as much uh, lately. Um, although that may change soon. Um, my wife and I are in the process of starting up a small press because we're insane, and. Um, and we're going to launch with a short story anthology, which we hope to be kickstarting soon. I've been saying that for months now, and we still haven't done it yet, um, because basically because 2020. Sure. Um, oh yeah. And uh, but we're 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 going to be starting up a small press called Whisperwood Press, um, and uh, and we're gonna, we're not going to it's not going to be huge. We're just going to be doing like an anthology every other year or so. Um, but um, so we're going to be editing that, and that that's going to bring on the old editing muscles. But it's it's. <laughs> It's different. You know, when you're an editor, you're focusing on bringing out the best in the work. And that happens when I'm writing, too, sometimes, which is a good thing, because I want, I want my work to be better. Um, but that's the you're, you're trying to when you're editing, you're trying to take what's there and improve it um, uh, and, and make sure it's clear and make sure that the, the the reader is getting what the author wants them to get. Um, so they are two different things. Uh, they're related, but um, they're not exactly the same. Um, and uh, usually I can keep them separate. They're, they're, there's enough, the Venn diagrams overlap enough that, it, that it's, they're both satisfying a creative urge. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's good though. And it, and it helps sometimes when I'm, when I'm burned out on writing, editing something helps get me back into the swing of it, just to, to reset my brain a little bit. Now is this new in this new imprint going to be something similar to uh, like Crazy Eight Press, where you're you're finding 
different publishers to take the stories, or you're going to be a publisher yourself? Crazy A Press isn't doing that. Crazy A Press is its own publisher. Okay, I, I get the impression because yeah. because because Bob Greenberger was on here. I got the impression, and I, I I probably misunderstood this that you have the imprint, and when Bob said finding publishers, I I for some reason I got the sense that the two it was you have the label. Uh, you've got the the Crazy Eight label, and various and various different publishers would publish Crazy Eight books. So I guess I had that wrong in my head. No, that that Crazy Eight publishes it themselves. Okay, okay, all right, yeah. all right. Um, the they have different imprints within Crazy Eight, um, but which is basically each individual author, more or less. Um, Crazy Eight Press is sort of its own little collective thing. No, it's going to be a small press like Eastbeck Books, like Wordfire Press. Um, and, and like Wildfire Press and like any number of other presses, of which there are far too many for me to list here. Um, but I mean, Eastbeck and, and um, Wildside and, and Prince of Cats are ones that I'm personally dealing with in some way or other. So they're ones that I, I'm mentioning. But um, uh, no, there's tons of, and we're going to be like that, only much, much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned crowd. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I've got editorial experience. My wife does book production. So mm -hmm. between the two of us, we have all the skills necessary. Gotcha. Um, so and we just stuff we want to do just stuff we want to do for fun um and for likely very little profit now, well and and speaking of that you mentioned the crowdfunding uh for this for this first anthology and we've seen yeah. you know like we've seen with with bob's stuff mm -hmm. uh the thrilling adventure yarns anthologies have have funded over there and we've seen a number of comics and graphic novels going that route my, my publisher of the pre, my publisher for the precinct books is eSpec books and that's their business model they kickstart every single one of their books. So. so is that something that was always part of the plan or is you just started to think, well, how's, what's the best way to get this thing out in front of people? And, and you it's, came upon that. The reason why I'm doing the same reason why eSpec is doing it. Basically the, the crowdfund gives you the upfront money you need to put the book together. And this way that covers the initial production costs. It covers hopefully paying the authors um and then and that basically means everything after that is profit you know the the idea of is that the crowdfund enables you to cover the the book production sure. itself uh and then every sale you make after that is pure money into everybody's pockets into you know the authors and the publishers pockets after that now we've seen we've seen a lot of these crowdfunding projects, especially over on the graphic novel side, the comic book side, where you have a lot of indie creators that have jumped into this over on both Kickstarter and Indiegogo. But yeah. now you're starting to see the recognized names that have been with DC and Marvel, people like Scott Snyder and Sean Gordon Murphy and, and that group. Kyle Higgins has got one going on right now. Is that looking at it, I'm, I'm not sure how much into the comics industry you are right now as a writer, as a creator, but is that the model going forward or is that just one aspect of how it's the comics model. industry is going? It's a model. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's comics has always been more um, friendly to, to independent creators than, than traditional book publishing that's changed over the last 10 years. But um it's another it's another tool in the toolbox it's another way to get stuff out to people um and and it's and it's a way especially especially for graphic novels because the production costs are way bigger uh for, for a much more uh, you know the 
anything with artwork in it is going to be more expensive to produce than anything that doesn't have artwork in it. And so uh, using the crowdfund to help defray the costs and, and also help promote your, your product is, right. is it's win-win really. Um, unless you don't make your funding, in which case you haven't lost anything except some time. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've successfully crowdfunded a whole bunch of works of short fiction. Um, I've, I've used Kickstarter and once Indiegogo also to do a crowdfund for short fiction in the Dragon Precinct universe. Uh, and for that matter, I kickstarted Mermaid Precinct because I was between publishers at the time. And um, so uh, it's 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 a good way to get your work in front of people, particularly particularly if it's something that's kind of a niche product that may not necessarily have a huge mass market appeal, but for which there is still an audience. Right. Um, which is which is what you know Indian small press publishing is good for anyhow is is for giving a home to something that may not appeal to a Jagunda audience that you need for a mass market book, but still has an audience that still deserve to read the story. Um, and you can still actually make a decent profit at it uh, if it does well. Well, and I think the other the other thing too on that is the question of sustainability. Like you're talking about with with uh, you know doing books over and over and over again, every single book crowdfunding. Uh, we're starting to see uh, that model where you have a lot of indie creators are now into their third or fourth uh, graphic novel book in a series. Uh, Brian Polito's been doing it for years. Uh, you know, we've seen you know Ethan Edskyver and Clint Stoker and, and a number of them have have said, okay, here's the first book. Now here's the second one. Is that you know there's three or four in the pipeline now. It almost seems like this is. I've seen a lot of comparisons to image comics with this uh, in, in terms of the kind of shift in the industry, in the mentality, because for a long while crowdfunding didn't have the legitimacy aspect of it as it does now. I mean, it's people are taking it more seriously now than they used to. I think maybe, maybe in comics, I, uh, uh, in, in publishing and in gaming, it's been taken seriously for quite a while. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a perfectly legitimate way of doing things as long as you actually fulfill your rewards it's fine sure um, you know and it, and it's and it's 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 been a, a very good way of, of developing all sorts of things uh, creatively not just not just uh, books and comics like I said books and, and games have been using Kickstarter for ages um, no, I did my first Kickstarter in 2013. Do you um, do you have a preference? Do you have a preference of Kickstarter over Indiegogo? Does it matter? Is there a particular reason why you use Kickstarter? Um, in the uh, for the most part, uh, Kickstarter has more visibility. Yeah. Um, I, I I switched to Indiegogo for one particular project for uh, two reasons. One, that was at the time when Kickstarter was having some issues with unionizing, and I wasn't sure I wanted to keep using them. Uh, they have since settled that, for which I'm grateful. Um. But also that was one case where it didn't matter if I didn't make my funding. I prefer, for at least the projects that I have been doing, um, I prefer the model where if I don't make my funding, I don't have to actually then make do the thing. <laughs> um, uh, I, I like what the, the one and only Kickstarter or crowdfund that I have done that has failed was for a Dragon Precinct graphic novel. Um, like I said, anything with art, you need more money. And I, sure. the artist that I wanted to use, I had to pay him. Um, the amount I raised wouldn't have been enough. There were three aspects of the, of the production, and I, I didn't cover any of them with the crowdfund, which was a lesson. And, and if I'd done that through Indiegogo, I would have been screwed because yeah. uh, I, I didn't even, I wasn't even in any danger of making my funding. Um, 
and and that that there was a lesson in that 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 I don't have enough of an audience to justify that high a crowdfund. So lesson learned. Moving on. Um, I'm sticking with pros because <laughs> the margins there are much smaller. Um, and and you know as long as you find a way that works and as long as you fulfill your rewards, at which I'm not always as speedy as I could be. I, I uh, as long as you stay in you know stay in communication with your supporters, then um, then it works. Um, and hopefully it'll keep working. It'll keep working until it doesn't, because nothing lasts forever. Yeah. But uh, but it's it's an like I said, it's another tool in the toolbox. I don't think it's going to replace anything. I think it's just supplementing all the other many methods of getting creative work out there. Uh, is the is the tie-in because we talk about legitimacy on crowdfunding, uh, and you t- and you mentioned some of the issues with being a tie-in writer as opposed to a legitimate fiction author. That's that's what I was going to say. It seems like that's kind of not as much of a thing as it used to be. I mean, you guys are still getting. Has has tie-in fiction gained a little bit more in terms of respectability, credibility? This is a legitimate form of storytelling, even though it's not your own yes. universe. Yes. Um, the the that that sea change has been happening over the course of my entire career, to be honest. And and the person who said it to me when I was pitching the BSG novel um, surprised me because I didn't think anybody still felt that way. And this was 15 years ago. Um, at this point, yeah, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Um, and also in my own case, I've got a lot more original stuff out now. Anyway, I've got, you know, five precinct novels. I've got, you know, a bunch of other original stuff. Sure. I've got another urban fantasy series that I'm working on right now. So um, that, I'm not just a tie-in writer anymore. Um, you know, when 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 I was rejected for the BSG franchise, I had precisely one original novel, the the original publication of Dragon Precinct in 2004, and that was it. And and the imprint that that was part of with Simon and Schuster had been discontinued, so I had no idea when I was going to do another one. <laughs> so, but uh, but since then, I've 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 got an extensive uh, amount of of original fiction, so it's not really a factor. Having said that, um, the the stigma really doesn't it still lingers in some bluff old traditionalists out there, I'm sure. Um, but it's not as prevalent as it was. And it's become less and less prevalent with each passing year that I've been in the business. Is that a generational thing? Do you think, or is that just, Partly. it's wearing down over time. People are just starting to realize that it's, it's just another way to tell a story. Uh, the little, little, little column, a little column B there's, there's, um, and, and, a part of the prevalence of it too and and the 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 number of people also the 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 divide between screen science fiction and and print science fiction is thinner than it used to be partly because screen science fiction is so much more popular now yeah um you know it was different when uh you know the only science fiction on the air was the occasional star trek show um and and none of it was like when 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 the movies based on Lord of the Rings became the most popular movies on the planet, that was a big change. You know, when when comic book movies became the most popular movies in the world, that was a big change. Um, the 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 mainstream popularity of things like the X Files in the '90s and the Star Trek spinoffs also in the '90s, and then and just the 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 proliferation of science fiction on screen, and and you're now getting people in the field who grew up with this, who grew up with a, a in a world where the best science fiction isn't just the books. Right. Um, the best science fiction is everywhere. It's the comic books. It's the movies. It's the TV shows. And it's the books. Um, it's it's 
it's a much and it's a much more multimedia focused society. Um, so and and you're also getting more tie-in fiction that where the people involved in making the product are more invested in the tie-ins. Right. I did a Heroes Reborn novella back in 2015 when when NBC revived Heroes for that miniseries. I worked directly with the showrunner on that one. That never happens. Um, usually because the showrunner is too busy running the show to actually pay attention to the tie-in fiction. But in that case, they were very invested in making sure that the novellas that we, we did six novellas that tied into the series and they all tied in very closely and were accurate. Yeah. Um, you know, I worked with the creator of Farscape on the Farscape comics. Um, you know, it was John Rogers himself approved the plots for the leverage novels that came out, uh, in 2014, uh, or 2013. Um, and so on, you know, the, 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 the people involved in making, the uh the stuff we're tying into are more invested in the tie-in fiction than they used to be um and that's made the tie-ins better for the moment you know um and and you know people like to write them and people like to read them and and there's less of a stigma on doing things you enjoy <laughs> oh sure well and i i now let me ask you about this because you talk about the the everything kind of becoming this multimedia thing where it's all of a piece um there have been a number of different places I've seen the comment. It seems now because we get we get news items pretty much every week uh, that we do on Saturday. You know, we do our Saturday morning news roundup, and every week I'm getting stories of books that have been optioned for adaptation. We've got comic books that get optioned. You know, why the last man's in in production now, and all of these things. And the flip side of that, the the criticism is, uh, you know, it seems like you're writing the book in order to get the movie deal. Is that a concern overall? Or should, should authors be that wrapped up in prioritizing the adaptation deal? Or is it just, let's just tell the story in the book, we'll worry about the rest of it later? Because it seems like it's a, it's a mix at this point. Uh, the, the the number of books that are written compared to the numbers that actually get adapted is a fraction. Sure. Yeah. Um, and and just because something is optioned doesn't mean it's going to happen. I, I I know several people who have gone through the process of of their books being optioned and then developed. Honestly, it amazes me that any movie or TV show ever gets made at all, given all the obstacles that are that are in place. <laughs> um, it's it's a shot in the dark, um, and you don't know if it's going to happen or not. And even you know I I've Yes, I've, I've read all those news stories, too, and 90% of them are never actually going to make it to the screen for one reason or another. Yeah. Um, it, it It's great for the writer because it's more money and it's more exposure. Even, even the worst adaptation of a book that comes out will drive sales. Um, the Sci-Fi Channel did a, a, a TV version of The Dresden Files a bunch of years ago. Sure, yeah, with uh, um, Paul Blackford. It was not, a, it was not great. Um, it had some problems, but it still sales spiked on the book because there was a TV show. Yeah. Um, you do a book based on a movie, a movie based on a book, excuse me, and sales of the book are going to spike, even if it's a terrible movie that nobody likes. Even if it's a movie that doesn't do well, the book still benefits from. Now you, um, may, yeah, uh, on, so on you the, don't, you don't, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. The, the flip side of that, people are looking at, you mentioned the Marvel movies, the superhero mm -hmm. films. It doesn't seem like uh, that comic book sales 
have benefited all that much from the superhero movies being out there. Is that a, is that an odd discrepancy? Why do you think that is? No, because the distribution for comic books has been weird for a very long time. Um, it's, and, and the primary method of delivery of new comic book stories is a method that you have to like work a lot harder to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's changed with the development of online sales or not. I don't know enough one way or the other. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> what about uh, Alan? What about Alan Moore's comments about superhero movies, basically kind of corrupting all of the entertainment media that we've got here. What do you, I, think I think Alan he... Moore is a cranky old man uh, who <laughs> I don't take particularly seriously. Um, uh, great writer, but uh, um, I, I, it, it art art is art, um, and it, I don't think it's corrupting anything. And, and I and I don't think creating something that a lot of people enjoy and like is a, is a bad thing. You know, um, I, I, one of my least favorite phrases is guilty pleasure. As long as something isn't actually actively harming somebody, you should absolutely have no guilt about taking pleasure from it. Yeah. Um, I can't stand the Twilight books, but the fact that they're popular, I don't think is a bad thing <laughs> because people enjoy them. If people enjoy them. Good. They should enjoy them. Um, that's. Art is art, and art is a worthwhile thing. There's, there's, there's nothing inherently noble about appealing to fewer people, you know. Um, and I, I don't see anything wrong. You know, lots of people. The reason why the the superhero movies do well is because there have been a lot of really good superhero movies that are very entertaining that a lot of people like. That isn't bad. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's had. Yes, it has. One could argue it's corrupted, but it also, if it wasn't for superhero movies, we would not have gotten the version of Much Ado About Nothing that Joss Whedon did. Because the only reason he was able to do it is because of the cachet he got from Avengers. Um, it's enabled a lot of actors to then do other work that, and directors to, to raise their profile. Um, a lot more people have heard of Taika Waititi because he directed a Thor movie. A lot more people um, have heard of Patty Jenkins because she directed a Wonder Woman movie. That's good for them. Yeah. Um, that means that down the line they can do other projects that may not make as much money, but which are worthwhile in terms of, of, of art. Um, and this is good. You know, um, I would much rather make all my money off of the Dragon Precinct books, but that's not realistic because I don't have the kind of audience that does that. But if writing an alien novel drives some people to then check out my precinct book, that's good. Yeah. That helps me. Um, it's that's it's it's that's how it works. And I don't I don't I don't see it. I think calling it a, a corrupting influence is ridiculous. Well, now the the idea here of appealing to a smaller audience, uh, it kind of it, it makes me. Uh, brings up a question about the Hugos where you see the participation numbers going down. Uh, we were at Worldcon in 2016 when it was here in Kansas City and one thing we, we noticed a lot of the people attending the Worldcon are in an older generation and you know we're seeing that kind of thing continue as is the literary side of science fiction in terms of the Hugos and the Nebulas and the Saturns, all, all of those, is that group 
and I I don't want to couch this as an us versus them thing, but the the people who have a vested interest in the Hugos, it seems to be that group is dwindling. How how do we how do we the Hugos increase were interest? A niche. The Hugos are the books that are considered best by a subsection of a subsection of a subsection. Um, the 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 people who go to world cons are a subsection of people who go to conventions at all because it's expensive and there's right. a lot of people who can't, you know, or can't travel or whatever. Um, that people who go to conventions are a subsection of the actual readership. I, I always remind people that, that, that organized fandom is only a small handful of the actual readership has to be, if it wasn't, if it wasn't, we'd all have gone out of business by now. Yeah. Um, my pa- I, I always give my parents as an example, I read science fiction, and, and watch science fiction because of my parents. They're the ones who were into it in the first place. My parents never had any even awareness of organized fandom. That doesn't make them any less science fiction readers. Um, the, it, the, so the Hugos, like I said, it's a subset of a subset of a subset. Yeah. And because most people who go to Worldcon don't vote in the Hugos either. Um, so it's not really that, it was never that great a barometer in the first place. I mean, yes, a lot of great works have gotten Hugos, but there's a lot of stuff that gets missed. Um, uh, you know, my, my view on award, I've, I've been on, I've been involved in too many awards to really take any of them seriously. <laughs> um, my feeling on them is getting one is great. Not getting one is meaningless. Yeah. Um, in, a, in either direction. Um, it's, it is indeed an honor to be nominated because it means someone noticed you. It doesn't mean not getting one doesn't mean you're not any good. It just means that it didn't get noticed by this particular group of people. Um, I don't think it's as much of an issue with the nebulas because the nebulas uh, are voted on by science fiction writers um, or by members of the science fiction writers of America. So it depends on the membership. Sure. Um, but at least there it's, it's a jury of your peers, as it were. Um, the, the scribe awards for the international association of media tie-in writers are the same thing. That's a case where, like I said, getting an award is great, but if you never get an award and I've, I've received precisely one award, um, which was, which I had to share. It was a tie for best short story from the scribes. Um, that's it. And, and an anthology I was in, one best anthology, but it was an anthology that had like a hundred stories in it and mine was one. Um, that, that is that is the, the full extent of my award winning. Um, if I won more, it'd be great. If I don't win another one ever again, I don't care. It it doesn't matter that much. It's it's a nice acknowledgement and it certainly doesn't hurt. Sure. But not getting an award, eh. You talk about the people who don't attend conventions. Yeah. And um, now in which is this, a lot, which is a lot more people than the ones who did. Yeah. Well, and a lot more people now don't attend now that everything's well, shut down. But once, <laughs> once conventions start up again, now we've been tracking since March 15th, when we started reporting on various different schedule changes for everything. We're so far, I think up to about 1400 events that have either canceled or they've rescheduled or they've rescheduled and canceled or they've postponed or they've gone virtual. They've said, oh, okay, we're going to do a different we have over 2,100 events worldwide on our list that we track. And it seems to me that moving forward from here, all of them are going to have to figure out some kind of an online virtual component, I would think. Would, would, does it make sense for at least the bigger events, things like... Uh, San Diego or New York or, or Dragon Con or any of those to have a virtual online element 
that's planned. Yeah. I think it's a great idea. It's, it's good for people who can't travel. It's good for people who have various disabilities. Um, it's good for people who have anxiety in crowds. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's good for people who, you know, have back surgery and can't make the convention. It's good for people who, you know, uh, th there's so many ways that it can, this, th that having a virtual component can bring more people to the show in one way or another. I mean, there's still aspects of the show you can't replicate. It's been really hard to replicate a dealer's room. Yeah. Um, that's, that's been the one, that's been the worst aspect of this is, is the inability to, for vendors to really be able to sell things. There's a lot of people who make most of their money off of selling at conventions. Um, you know, they're, they're, I know, I know of several vendors at DragonCon who depend on DragonCon for the vast majority of their yearly income and they got screwed this year. Yeah. Um, and that, that aspect of it, you know, still requires a certain level of, of in-person, you know, interaction. Um, but I think certainly in terms of, of programming, uh, there's a lot of ways that this, all the virtual conventions that we've seen and the virtual panels and such, uh, can be utilized even once we're, we can gather in large groups again safely. That'll be, like I said, it'll be good for everybody. It means more people can participate, uh, which is which is never a bad thing. I watched uh, I watched some of Dragon Cons. I watched some of Comic Con at home. Uh, I've... I, I, I didn't I didn't see any of the Comic Con stuff, but I par I participated in a bunch of the Dragon Con. Ones. It seems like Dragon Con has a better handle on it than than Comic Con, which is really surprising because San Diego, you would think, you know, it's this huge, massive thing, and it's all all these media and Hollywood types that come in. You would think that they'd be able to get this, and it doesn't seem like Comic Con at home did very well at all. In terms I have no of because because um, the viewer numbers are only you know a hundred here, twenty here, three hundred here, yeah. the videos aren't pl playing very well. Now DC Fandom knocked it out of the park, I thought. And Dragon Con had the three different tracks where you had the live stuff going on. Now you had the fan tracks, and you Dra had all Dragon the past Con, stuff. Dragon Con had the advantage of spreading spreading around the work. Um, the because a lot of the tracks were doing stuff as well. Uh, and some of the tracks actually had been doing stuff leading up, like the American Sci-Fi Classics track had been doing quarantine panels leading up to that. So they already had it all down pat. Um, some tracks did better than others, but um, but because the the see with with Comic Con at home, it was the same group of people managing the entire thing, whereas uh, Dragon Con was able to to because Dra that's how Dragon Con set up. Dragon Con isn't so much one convention as about. 25 smaller conventions all under one roof well, sure six roofs yeah. but um, and so so they could they the, the work was spread around a little more which which i think helped them um and and also there were there were different levels of things at dragon con you know comic con at home was almost entirely actor driven um because that's what that's what's going to bring eyeballs but um but I don't know. The uh, one of the one one of the other issues with virtual conventions, of course, that, that you can't do in person is autographs, and Comic Con is more geared toward the stargazing, you know, see them talk and then get their autograph afterward than Dragon Con is. Right. Uh, autographs are only a very small part of Dragon Con, whereas it's a huge part of San Diego. So um, that I think might have been a factor too. There's there's that that's that that's another thing which which yeah. Is harder to recreate in a virtual, uh, impossible really to create in a virtual atmosphere. You can't really, you know, do an autograph line over over Zoom, um, and I think that affected Comic Con also. 
but there there's there's ways i mean i've done i've done a whole bunch of conventions this year uh over over zoom you know this way with with I, we did uh, heliosphere that way we did uh balticon um Bubonicon, uh capclave shoreleaf um dragon con and there and a bunch of them have continued to do things uh, several of the Dragon Con tracks have continued to do panels, like uh, the Urban Fantasy track at Dragon Con has been doing weekly looks at the previous week's episode of Supernatural. Uh, I was on one on Monday. Um, the Sci-Fi Classics track has been continually doing quarantine panels, um, and some of the others I think are are, are doing stuff as well. So it's still, uh, and Shoreleave has been doing a, a panel every month, just to you know, just to get give everybody a chance to see each other and to, to communicate sure. with each other and talk to each other. Well, and, and it and seems like. This also seems like it gives uh, these various different events uh, it, from a marketing side, you're you're raising awareness throughout the year of the various different things that you're doing. Yes. Um, I guess the danger on that is you're trying to you've got to make sure that what you're doing online doesn't necessarily take away from doing the actual physical. Event. I mean, once we it get will. back to doing events and I don't think it, it will. will. Like I said, you don't have you don't have the same level of social interaction over Zoom and Discord that you get in person. Yeah. Um. And and you don't you know the the, the meetings and the camaraderie. You still you still need that. Um. Like I said, what this will do is open it up to people who, for whatever reason, can't do that. And I think that's only a good thing. Um. We were already starting to see that a lot, like conventions, like Dragon Con and Worldcon did a joint thing when when Worldcon was in Chicago and over Labor Day weekend, where they did some joint panels. Right. Um. Uh, we had like five people in Chicago and five people in Atlanta. Um, uh, some like uh, the last couple of uh, Discworld uh, conventions, uh, Terry Pratchett did those via Skype. Um, both Tom Baker and Leonard Nimoy have done media conventions over Skype because they couldn't really travel uh, and uh, and so on. And I think now that that's it's we're getting to the point where we're going to see a lot more of that, where we'll see guests who can't travel for whatever reason, still be able to attend a show to an extent yeah. by, by doing something over Zoom or over Skype or over Google Hangouts or whatever your program of choice is, which again is only a good thing, particularly you know with, with some actors and authors who are getting older uh, for whom you know the stress of a convention is really not something they can deal with anymore, but still enable them to interact with their, with the, with their fellow authors and their, and their fans and their readers and their, and their viewers. Well, and that's one of the things that we've tried to do with, with some of our stuff. When we, when we're live out at an event, uh, you know, we, we broke new ground with what we did at Worldcon and people were asking us, is this the new model? Is this what you guys are going to do? It's like, well, we'd love to do this at different events. But the other aspect of it is when we go to some place like Star Wars Celebration and we're walking around and we're just broadcasting from the floor saying, oh, hey, here's a booth, here's a booth, here's a booth, look at this. And people are sitting there saying, you know, we're basically by proxy letting them see what's at the event. It's it's right. almost as if they're there, but not quite. So if we have some sort of a mix of those different things that we bring to the table, but then you've got, you know, people like yourself uh, and you've got, you know, a YouTube channel and you've got all of yes. those different things. And <laughs> we've talked, I've talked to a number of people about the, the idea that authors have to do a lot more of their own marketing and, and you're doing readings here on your YouTube channel. Some people seem to grasp it a little bit better than others. Uh, but you know, hopefully maybe this, this kind of thing where we're online and we're doing these kind of programs, this kind of, of interaction with the creators of the thing 
maybe helps kind of get people used to that we can do it this way and still bring value to, to the, the conversation about stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, all right. So what's coming out next for you? Uh, well, I mentioned the two most recent books, uh, Animal and To Hell and Regroup. To Hell and Regroup is now on sale from eSpec Books uh, in trade paperback or uh, ebook form. Um, there's also an omnibus called The 18th Race Omnibus, which collects all three books uh, issue and doubt in all directions and To Hell and Regroup all in one one big quivering mass. Um, those are, again, available from eSpec Books. Uh, there is my very terrible website, which will not be a terrible website for much longer. Um, Wait, you're I, actually going to update this? It's almost this is almost very retro at this point here. I know, I know, I know. No, I'm working with a web designer. Um, we've already started talking. She recently bought a house, so we have to that uh, the working on the website was put on hold while she moved. But uh, uh, the plan is hopefully uh, to launch the new site in 2021. Um, but uh, but I've got uh, like I said, animal and. Um, uh, to Hell and Regroup are due out soon. Um, the uh, I'm working right now on the second uh, Brom Gold adventure, which is going to be called Feet of Clay, uh, which uh, is my urban fantasy series about a guy from the Bronx who hunts monsters for a living. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I'm I'm my next book with Dr. Batra, uh, my collaborator on Animal, is another one we're almost done with. I'm just doing final revisions on it. Um, I've got a short story coming out in, um, the Horns and Halos anthology, which is coming out from Eastbeck books. Uh, that is, um, a story. It's about half stories about angels and half stories about demons. Uh, and mine is a story that features a woman named Yolanda Rodriguez, who is in the same setting as the Brom Gold books. Uh, she is a, a supernatural hunter for hire. That same character already appeared in an anthology that came out earlier this year called Badass Moms, which was from Crazy Eight Press, uh, edited by Mary Fan, which is a very self-explanatory anthology. Is it about moms who are badass? Sure. And uh, um, I really fell in love with that character, and, I, and I'm continuing to use her. She's also going to be in the next Brom Gold book that I'm writing right now. And um, uh, what else? I've got... Um, and then I'm going to be working on Phoenix Precinct, which is the next book in the Precinct series. And uh, I've got another, I've got a crowdfund story that I need to actually write. Um, uh, Cassie Zukov story, my, my urban fantasy series set in Key West, which are only short stories. I haven't done any novels with her, but there's a, and once I've written that story, which is called Ragnarok in a Hard Place, I should have enough to do a second collection. Uh, the first nine Cassie Zukov stories were in a collection called Ragnarok and Roll. Uh, and I now have enough stories at this point to do a second collection, or I will when I finish this last story, which will be called Ragnarok in a Hard Place. And um, I've also got, uh, the International Association of Media Tie-In Writers is putting together an anthology called Turning the Tide, spelled T-I-E-D, which is going to be a charity anthology um, that will, and I honestly don't remember who it's benefiting now, crap, and I was part of the discussions with this too, but it's going to be a charity anthology featuring uh, it's all going to be tie-in stories with characters who are in the public domain, so we don't have to pay any rights. I think I remember hearing something about that. Yes. Yeah. When when is yeah. that supposed to be go go come out? Uh, I think we're shooting for the spring okay. of 2021. Uh, the stories themselves are due December 15th, uh, giving people time to be late and all sorts of other stuff and and editing and such. Figure spring or summer of 2021. Okay. Depending on how. Depending on how timely we all are with turning our stories in, uh, mine is going to feature Aisha from the H. Ryder Haggard novel *She*. Oh, okay. 
Okay. Well, when that one and, comes uh, out, be sure to let us know about that because we yes. can have you back on to talk about it. And then, of course, your crowdfunding anthology that uh, that you're yes. starting. Uh, well, so... that'll be called the four question mark of the apocalypse or the four fill in the blank of the apocalypse. <laughs> well, when that's ready to go... you've heard about the horsemen. These are going to be the four everything else. Ah, OK. All right. Well, Hopefully we will definitely have you back. Finally, on for that. we'll get yeah. it out. All right. Well, Keith DeCandido, thank you very much for being here today. DeCandido.net is the uh, is the website, and you can check that out. We will put a link uh, in the show notes here. And uh, for those of you who are interested in getting one of our nice little stickers here, uh, or if you have material you want to send us to review, we do have a mailing address. It's 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. And, of course, we do invite you to subscribe, and uh, you can find us on all of the different social media. You can see that there. And, uh, of course, uh, on your way out, if you want to leave us a thumbs up and maybe share the link uh, with your cohort, we do appreciate that as well. That's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for watching. Thanks very much for being in the chat. You can leave a comment, feedback. You can send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for me.com. Good morning, Multiverse, Saturday morning at 10, 10 a.m. Eastern. And uh, don't forget, it's a cookbook. Have a good weekend, folks. This has been a presentation of Sci Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.